Please be seated. And let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 this evening. In chapter 7, the, we're introduced to uh, two groups of people who will be saved uh, during the Great Tribulation period, saved through faith in Christ. And the first group is Jewish, effective, uh, affectionately known as the 144,000. And then the second group is Gentiles, as we uh, will see later in the chapter, coming out of all uh, nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. And after these things, verse 1, John declared, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, that is north, south, east, and west, holding the four winds of the earth so that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, can you imagine uh, the effect of that upon the earth? No, no, no. Uh, trade winds, uh, no storm activity, no movement of, of the wind or of, of the air current at all on the face of, of the planet. And uh, imagine what the heat is going to be like, the smog is going to be uh, like just pure sta you know, stagnation. We can imagine <laughs> what it'll be like, but anyway, enough about our problems, right? Uh, so, but that's what's going to happen. And then uh, John said, I saw another angel ascending from the east, different than the four angels. And he was having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And so don't harm anything, don't move forward until these servants of God are sealed and then uh, and I heard verse 4 the number of those who were sealed 144,000 of all of the tribes uh, of the children of Israel were sealed and uh, so uh, Jews for Jesus will not go out of business uh, uh, during the great tribulation period and they'll have to reform because their whole staff will be uh, raptured but uh, there is a restaffing, and they continue uh, the ministry into the great tribulation. And so, they, uh, uh, the, of all of the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And so they're sealed. We know that this cannot be um, the church age church because the Bible declares that we are already sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 
who declares that in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. A seal in ancient times was very, very simply a mark of ownership. We already possess a mark of ownership in our lives that we belong to God. That mark is a living seal who lives inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so this seal, we find out a little bit more about the 144,000 later in chapter 14. This seal from verse 1 there in chapter 14 appears to be the name of God that is written on their foreheads. This uh, seal reveals them to be servants of the Lord and it provides them with a divine protection to fulfill their ministry, their God-given purposes. These are believers because later on in chapter 14 they are going to sing a song to God there that speaks of their redemption. Only believers are, are redeemed and so uh, they're going to enjoy uh, God's protection upon their lives during the course of, uh, of their uh, ministry and uh, until their ministry is over during their tribulation period and then later on we're going to find them in in heaven and so they're going to be protected in the same way and this imagery of all of these uh, things that are going to be happening in the next two or three chapters strong parallels with God's deliverance of the Jews from uh, Egypt under Pharaoh and so even as God uh, in the course of his pouring out of his judgment upon Egypt there came a point where he began to differentiate between the Egyptians and uh, and his people the children of Israel here is a differentiation that occurs between uh, these Jewish believers and the rest of the world as the plagues are being poured out upon the world. They number, verse 4, their number is 144,000, 12,000 uh, from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So what do we know about them? Did you see a tribe of McGillicuddy in there? Uh, a tribe of uh, Ippolito. I think of uh, my good friend Frank and uh, listening to him a little bit this week and all. No, all of these are tribes of, of Israel. They are Jews. And just so no one in their right mind, I don't want to offend people, but just so that no one, you know, would even be tempted to spiritualize this group of people and say that they are anything other than 144,000 Jews uh, and to say they represent the church in the tribulation, during the tribulation period, God can't be any plainer than he is to me in verses 5 through 8 by naming each of the tribes and then the 12,000 that are going to come out of, of each of the, of the tribes. You just can't be more literal. You can't be any clearer. And sometimes you hear people talking about in different literature and different sermons talking about uh, the 12 lost tribes or the lost tribes of Israel. They're not lost. God knows exactly where they are. And all that matters is that he knows where they are. So they may be lost to us, but they're not uh, lost to him. So who and what are they? Clearly, they are Jews. But additionally, and it's a good thing to maybe write, if you do write in your Bible, don't put it in yet. See if it's worthy of writing. 
in, in your margin. But it's good to put a, a little reference uh, in, in, next to verse 4 in your margin of Revelation chapter 14, verse 4. And I'd like you just to flip over a few pages to chapter 14. And it kind of fills in the whole blank on, on who these, these people are. In chapter 14, verse 4, wrestling pages, wrestling, 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 wrestling. It's a good sound. Verse 4, these are the ones speaking of the 144,000. In addition to being Jews, we are told, who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, must be Christians, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So we know they're Jews. In chapter 14, verse 4, they're not defiled with women. In other words, they have to be men. And then they're virgins. They are virgins. <laughs> so, uh, so what you have here of the 144,000, you take the entire description of, of them in these two chapters, and what you have is 144,000 male virgin Jews. That's what they are. That's what this group of, of people are. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses, uh, they claim uh, to be the 144,000 which was uh, fine uh, when they numbered less than 144,000 because then there was still room for you to be one of the 144,000, uh, this kind of elite uh, kind of group that they want to identify with. And, um, but then when they, their numbers went above 144,000, then the 144,000 within their religious system is one where, you know, the elite among the Jehovah Witnesses, kind of the, the super Jehovah Witnesses, the best who are Jehovah Witnesses, they will be numbered in there and then the others will be, be out. Now, occasionally, and I almost never witness to Jehovah Witnesses from the vantage point of the 144,000. I always talk to them concerning the deity of, of Jesus Christ. It's the larger issue. But I have t spoken to them uh, once or twice related to the issue of, of the 144,000 and shown them here in chapter 7 and then 14 who and, and you know, uh, what they are and that they're, uh, they, they, they're male virgin Jews and typically it's two males on my, on my doorstep so they, they've got one of the three knocked out. And, but I'll just ask, you know, are you a male virgin Jew? And uh, what tribe are you from? And, and all, of course, I've never, you never get an answer, uh, not because there maybe couldn't be an answer, but I've never yet to meet a, Jew, a Jewish Jehovah Jew witness. So, so trying to poke holes a little bit in, with the sword of the Spirit here, the Word of God, to say, let's rethink this. Now, for, the, for those of us who, who know the Lord as Christians, why in the world will we want to identify with 144,000 in the middle of, of the great uh, tribulation? As a Christian in the church age, I have no interest in identifying with 144,000. During the great tribulation, we are in an infinitely superior location. We find ourselves in heaven. Somebody may say, well, they're protected. They have a seal on them, and they're in the great tribulation. All right then their lives cannot be taken until it's allowed by God during the great tribulation period. But imagine what they will see. Imagine what they will hear. 
Now remember, when these seals are being broken and these trumpets are being blown, these judgments, the bowl judgments and all, the Holy Spirit's presence in the world through the church is gone. The spiritual flavor of this world is like a seance everywhere. You ever walked into a place that is just like, okay, the devil rules this place and he hasn't been moved in a long time. I'm in a stronghold right now. And the whole world is going to be like that. And these 144,000, God blessed them and they have his blessing. But they are uniquely called to do something for him during that age. We are not uniquely called to do that thing as members of the body of Christ here in the, the church age. This is two apples and oranges, more than apples and oranges, it's apples and rye bread, two entirely different things, and that's what the 144,000 are. Now, he introduces us to the next group, and we already were introduced to this group in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, in the fifth seal as it was opened, and that is, there are going to be a lot of people that come to know the Lord during the tribulation period, 144,000 Jews. And then we're told here that uh, uh, the number of the Gentiles, as he says, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one can number of all nations, peoples, tribes, peoples, and tongues. That's talking about Gentiles. The Jews are one people. They're not multiple peoples. Talking about Gentiles. Standing before the throne of God in heaven, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands. As we saw last week, a multitude without number will get saved during the Great Tribulation period. But they, they will lose their life to make a stand for Christ uh, during that particular uh, period. And, and so there they are. They're standing, we're told, here at this, this point in time. They're martyrs, have given their lives for faithfulness to the Lord during the Great Tribulation uh, period. They're clothed in white robes, and they have in their hands uh, palm branches. And palm branches were typically uh, waved by crowds in those days at victory parades or celebrations. You remember when Jesus made his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem on the Sunday prior to his crucifixion uh, on the cross and uh, they began to sing messianic psalms to him uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna Hosanna save now save now and uh, they waved palm branches in the air that was their way of doing something even more than applauding uh, it was an extension of the celebration in their heart for what it is that they were in the middle of. And here uh, they are, this celebration of their place in heaven uh, with the palm branches in their hands. And here's what they cry out, verse 10, with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They are celebrating the salvation that both Father and Son have united together to provide them with. In other words, they are thrilled to be in heaven. <laughs> they are thrilled to be saved. And I know every one of us that knows the Lord here tonight, we're thrilled to be saved. I don't know if I could be any more thrilled. You could be more thrilled. 
uh, if you were in the great tribulation, lost your life, and now you're in, in heaven. And uh, one day when we're in heaven, we'll be even more thrilled at our salvation when, when we stand there ourselves. But they're excited about the fact that they're saved. And you notice they cry out to the Lord uh, with a loud voice. With a, with a loud voice, there's the excitement, the wholeheartedness of it. And then the response of the angels and the elders and the living creatures to this uh, statement that they cry out to the Lord. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. And here's what they said, Amen, or that's the truth, so be it. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God. We'll be a little possessive of God. <laughs> He's our God, praise the Lord, forever and ever. Amen. That's the truth. Tap, tap. No erases. That is a liberal uh, translation of, of amen. And then one of the, the elders who's uh, there, he answered and he said to John, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? He asked John two questions here, doesn't, uh, doesn't he? Now notice what uh, John's uh, answer is. And I said to him, sir, you know. In other words, you know and I don't know. So I don't know why you're asking me this question. But it's a nice thing about heaven. Nobody bluffs there. You have, any, you have a friend that you ask, now what about this? And if they don't know the answer, they'll make one up kind of a thing. None of that happens in heaven. So he asked John a question. What is this all about? And who are these people? He says, I don't have the slightest idea. Uh, you, uh, you know. And uh, I think, again, uh, a picture of the fact that the, you know, uh, church age church is, is not what John is looking at. He would have recognized them. It's the tribulation uh, saints. And so then, since John doesn't know the answer, and the angel does know the answer, he answers his own questions and he said to John these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation tribulation saints and washed their robes and made them white how in the blood of the lamb the perfect white pure righteousness right onness rightness of Jesus Christ put to their account on the basis of their simple faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and and so they're blessed in the same way that we are they've they've been given this position this right standing before God because of the blood of the lamb the blood of the lamb blood represents the life in the Bible so because of Jesus sacrifice on the cross for uh, our sins and therefore verse 15 uh, 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 therefore they are before the throne of God serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them they have the privilege now imagine they've been through hell on earth they have the privilege now being in heaven and serving the Lord I and mean, what a stark contrast for what they came out of what they've come uh, into and they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore indications of of uh, tribulation saints they've been through the early plagues and judgment that has been on the earth the sun shall not strike them uh, nor any heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them now, that's interesting you got a lamb who's also a shepherd kind of weird isn't it 
but it's the truth about Jesus. He's the lamb, but he's also the shepherd. He does everything. It's really uh, fabulous, and he does it just right. And he will lead them to to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what God will do in heaven to them. That's how God wants to use his hands in people's lives is to wipe away tears and, and to do these, these good things. In heaven, there's not going to be any grief from our earthly life. All sorrow, all that could produce sorrow within us is going to be banished. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 65, he said, For behold, I, the Lord speaking through him, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. So he wipes their tears away from what it is that they have been through. Chapter 8. And when he, that is Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, this statement in in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, has produced the speculation that there are no women in heaven. I don't believe it. I... I just want you to know what's being said out there about these passages. Now, women, here's your line related to this. The Bible also teaches that there'll be no sorrow in heaven, so there must not be any men there either, you know. So don't lose your sense of humor as a Christian on, on these things. So there is this silence in heaven for about half uh, an hour. Now, perhaps you've heard the old uh, saying, Uh, the lull before the storm or the quiet before the storm and that's what you have here is you have the quiet before the next storm of God's judgment unfolds the seventh seal when it's broken the seventh seal uh, there there are seven trumpet judgments that come out of the seventh seal that's what the seventh seal is is seven trumpet judgments that that flow out of it but before those judgments begin there's absolute silence here in 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 heaven because of the judgment that's about to come on the earth all of the singing stops all of the shouting all of the waving of palm branches uh, all of the outward worship and everything by the 12 uh, elders, the living creatures, the human host, the angelic host, it all just completely stops and there's just this awesome silence. Now you put yourself in the middle of that. You've got the 12 elders, you have the four living creatures, you have the, the angels that are opening up these seals, you have the Father, you have the Son, you have the Holy Spirit present, You have a multitude of Christians that from the church age, us, who are in heaven before that throne. I mean, without number, millions and millions and hundreds of millions. You have a multitude without number, he says, of people who have become Christians during the tribulation period. He speaks earlier as we've looked at it and said there is an angelic host that sings along with the singing of the saints to the Lord that is 10,000 times 10,000 and more. That's 100 million angels at least and more on this scene. You have creation 
of God. You have men and angels that are one up against another or however it's configured in heaven that goes out in all directions for miles and miles and miles and miles. And there's not one sound for a half hour in heaven. And it isn't that they, you know, put something up on the screen and said, all right, at the clo- when the clock hits such and such, there's no time up there. So, you know, when it hits this deal, we'll all go silent for half an hour. That's a plan. There's no orchestrated thing like that. There is something about the spiritual atmosphere of heaven at this moment in time that it produces this in all of God's creation. It is so heavy, it is so awesome that no one can make a peep under the weight of, of this awesomeness that is, is happening there in heaven at, at this time. And, it, 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 and it's just an awe, a holy awe over what it is that God is going to do next. I think that as the Lord uh, stops all of the worship and all of the praise that's being directed to him by his creation in heaven, the men and the, the angels alike, I'm inclined to believe that this silence communicates that while he is unapologetically holy and righteous and true in his judgment, that he takes no pleasure in the judgment that he is being forced to meet out upon the earth in order to bring an end to the rebellion of man. Yes, he does it. He couldn't be righteous. He couldn't be God if he didn't do it. But how much more he would rather be dispensing grace to the world, be dispensing salvation to the world, rather than judging the world. God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel to the children of Israel, Ezekiel 33:11, And he said, say to them, as one of the, it's, it's just a take a walk with it kind of verse. God's, he, he spoke through Ezekiel and he said, Say to them, the children of Israel, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, he said. Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Peter brings the same thing forth by the same Holy Spirit. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to remit repentance. That's what he desires. But because he is God, and because he is righteous, and because he is holy, he can't just want that. One day he must rise up and produce that in this fallen creation. And that's why Peter goes on in the next verse 
But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. He will do it. He, he, he must do it. But not until he has made it clear to all of creation that it does not please him to judge man. So then we're told in verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and each one of them were, and to them were given seven trumpets, each one a single trumpet. And then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints within, upon the golden altar which is before the throne. Now a censer, this is all uh, imagery from the Old Testament worship of, of God uh, in the temple of the tabernacle by the Jews. And a censer was basically just kind of a, a coal box. It was something that they would bring over to the altar. One of the priests would, as a, as a regular practice there, he, the, the firebox would be opened up, so to speak. Live coals would be brought from the altar. In other words, these are holy. This is a holy fire coming from the altar of God put in the firebox. Then as he is bringing, walking away from the altar with that firebox of coals, another one of the priests would come to him having incense. The incense would then be heaped upon the coals. It would, of course, begin to burn and produce smoke and a fragrance there within the temple. And all of this represented the prayers of God's people rising up to uh, God. And so that's the imagery of of what it is that, that is uh, happening there in the heavenly scene. Again, the Old Testament scene was just a model of, of heaven. And it's interesting to think about our prayers, how God sees them. I mean, we know how we see them, and we pray them, and, and we know that they're important to God and that He listens to them, and, and that our prayers make a difference when, when we lift them up to Him. But to Him, they're fragrance. They bring pleasure to him don't be afraid to bring anything to God in prayer <laughs> it's a throne of grace that we approach because of Jesus to receive grace and mercy from that throne in our time of need our prayers are fragrant to the Lord he never misses them he never fails to take note of them never fails to answer them though sometimes we can feel like you know that that one got filed somewhere and i don't know where you ever send like an email and it goes somewhere into you know timbuktu or something like that you don't know who you asked to marry you <laughs> just kidding just kidding And the smoke of the incense, verse 4, with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer filled with fire, holy fire. So here you have 
Somehow in that heavenly scene, you've got this holy fire. You have the prayers of God's people as incense being put on that fire. What is the prayer? I think the prayer that's being applied to those coals, to the holiness of God, is the prayer that God's people have prayed to the Lord for 2,000 years. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Every time we have prayed, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Here it is, stored together. We look and say, boy, you know, why do I pray that every single day for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth, even as it is currently being done in heaven? It doesn't seem to change anything. It will. One day, every, every time you've prayed that prayer that the Lord gave as a model, that's, that's being stored. It's a part of the incense that will be, be loaded up on, on those coals. And then the angel, he takes that censer, all the incense, the fire, it's a holy fire. He takes uh, this, the censer filled with the fire from the altar and he throws it uh, to the earth. And so this is a holy wrath in answer to holy prayers now that's about to be poured out on the earth and there are noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So an indication to the world that some trouble is, is coming. And so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And the seven trumpets constitute the seventh uh, seal. And the first angel sounded and hail and fire followed mingled with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of all the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up we don't know what this is something completely supernatural we don't know if it's a meteorite that comes in and and, and hits the earth or something uh, like this but something comes in and and uh, the hail and the fire the mingled with blood and again this takes us back to God's judgment upon Egypt when he brought the children of Israel out of uh, Egypt in in that uh, his seventh of the ten judgments that he poured out on Egypt and upon uh, Pharaoh because of their hard-heartedness toward God and their abuse and oppression of his people the righteous and we're told about that seventh judgment. And Moses stretched out his rod toward the Lord. Exodus chapter 9, verse 18 through 26. I'll read a couple of verses. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail. And fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. So, that, uh, very, so very heavy that there was none like it in all of the the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And so here in the tribulation period, the ungodly, the um, Antichrist is persecuting the righteous of God's people that are trying to come to know the Lord during this time and have known the Lord and they're, they're being beheaded for their faith and, and, and all and so God brings judgment against them, in the, in the, not in an unprecedented way, in a way that he, he brought it against uh, Egypt and Pharaoh for their mistreatment of, of his uh, people. You remember Pharaoh when, when Moses came to him and, and said, you know, God wants you to let his people go. And Pharaoh said, who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let uh, Israel go? Never say that. Never, ever say that. <laughs> Because God will be happy to introduce himself 
through ten plagues as he did with Pharaoh. It wouldn't be long before Pharaoh would know uh, just who in, in the world the Lord was. Now notice the result of this whole thing is that a third of the trees are burned up. All of the green grass was burned up. This is literal. It's not symbolic. Now, over and over again, when John talks about what it is that he's seeing, if he sees something that he has never seen before, and he has, and, and he has no ability to say this is that exactly, he will say it was something like such and such. He pulls something from his world that is as close as he can get to say this is kind of what this was like. And he knows how to do it. He does it continually through the revelation. But here when he talks about trees and he talks about grass, there's no like, there's no maybe, no perhaps. This is exactly what it is that, that, uh, that, that happens. Not literal. Uh, it isn't symbolic. It, it is literal. Imagine a, a forest fire burning that covers a third of the earth all at the same time. Started instantaneously. I'm, I'm reading a book uh, uh, called Dresden and about the Allied bombing of the uh, German city of, of Dresden in the last part of World War II. And they, they said that when the second wave of bombers came in and, and dropped their load on Dresden, it created a firestorm in the city where the temperatures within the city uh, exceeded 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The heat was so great that the uh, RAF, uh, Royal Air Force Flyers from England, who were flying over on their planes over 10,000 feet in the air, and they could feel the heat from their planes coming up from, from that city and from what was happening there within the city. You look at man, and he has completely you say why why would god allow the burning of the tree aren't trees we're supposed to hug them or something aren't we you know in the grass and we fertilize that baby and keep it watered and, and all that stuff we're supposed to respect the earth and we ought to be good stewards of the earth but god's heart is not set on this fallen earth he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth and, and so when man looks at this earth and cannot see the creator behind the creation and cannot, not, not cannot, will not see the creator behind the creation and will not see the designer behind the design, God feels free to say, if you cannot get the single great message that creation is designed to communicate, then I will feel free to kill the messenger because I know I'll create something infinitely better by the time the whole thing is, is done. A third of it is, is destroyed. A third of the forests, all of the green grass. That word a third, that phrase is used six times in this chapter. A third, a third, a third. Verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. What's God saying? He could destroy it all. But what he is communicating and John is communicating is as fearsome as this judgment is, it's restrained. It's restrained. It is a measured judgment in order to wake 
the population of the earth up to get them to repent. He could wipe them out completely. He's trying to get their attention, giving them space to repent. He could wipe them out, but he doesn't do it. Maybe you're here tonight and, and you're walking far away from the Lord. And something's happened in the last two or three months, and he wiped out a third of your life. He said, Beth, that's really, what in the, in, it's grace. It's grace. He could wipe everything out if you're walking that way with him and taking advantage of him in that way. It's measured. There's a reason. It's restrained in order that we would turn back to the Lord. And then notice the second trumpet in verse 8. The second trumpet sounded and something like, now see here's something, he can't put this, this isn't like anything he's seen before, even in a crazy place like Patmos. And then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Something like a great mountain uh, burning with fire thrown into the sea. Can't describe it. I haven't seen anything like this. I can't say it's just exactly this. The closest thing I can do to describe this thing, it's a great mountain burning with fire it was thrown into the sea sounds a lot like an asteroid or something like that coming through the atmosphere and and uh, maybe a, a massive volcano erupting uh, somewhere in a sea in, in violently there now when he talks nobody knows really uh, he's talking about um, he says and a third of the sea became blood he doesn't talk about all seas talking about a particular sea I'm inclined to believe the sea for anyone in the Middle East is going to be the Mediterranean Sea. And, and so perhaps, I mean, I'm not going to bet anything on it or anything like that, but that would be kind of what I, I, would, I would guess. And you look at the Mediterranean Sea, the number of boats on that sea, military vessels from all over the world are crammed into that sea then you take all of the cargo ships that are transporting you know commercial goods to and from that part of the earth you take all of the pleasure vehicles the cruise lines that are going to uh, uh, that do uh, cruises there i'm not saying not to go on a cruise there that'd be kind of nice do it before anyway uh, <laughs> so you know Budget cruises, you know, tribulation cruises. Uh, so, but uh, anyway, <clears throat> got to re-center here a little bit, whatever, whatever. So, uh, and yachts and all of this kind of stuff, and and it, and it comes in, and uh, 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 the uh, the destruction, a third of all of the ships. Uh, on it, sea turns to blood. The living creatures within a third of the living creatures in that that sea, they also die. Reminds us again of the plagues of Egypt, doesn't it? When when Moses took and took that staff and put it over the uh, you know the the river Nile and 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 all of that and and uh, all of the streams and the rivers and the ponds and all these things, they became uh, blood. God's judgment. 
Then notice the third trumpet, the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it was made bitter. And so here he sees uh, a, a great star. So he doesn't say it's like anything or anything like that. Here you have some great uh, heavenly, uh, you know, kind of star plunging in and, uh, and falling into the earth. It's burning like a torch, something entering into our atmosphere. The result of it hitting on the earth, the third of the rivers and the springs of the water, is that it, 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 it ruins the water supply a third of the water supply in the earth. Now, when we find out a little bit later in, uh, concerning the Great Tribulation, during the last three and a half years of the, uh, the Tribulation, the two witnesses, uh, while they are fulfilling their ministries, they are praying with success that there would be no rain on the earth. So you have no rain happening during this time and now a third of the fresh water supplies are destroyed in this particular seal in other words to find drinking water that doesn't kill you is going to be something very very difficult a third of the waters become wormwood undrinkable even toxic lethal to drink uh, them you think about the rivers of the world the Amazon the Nile the Mississippi and and uh, and all and uh, being destroyed their sin I think what one of the things the Lord is just speaking here in, in, the, in the judgment here, their sin and their rebellion has left a terrible taste in God's mouth. It has left a bitter taste in the mouth of everyone in, in heaven. And he's going to give them a taste of their own, their own medicine and in, in what their rebellion has brought into God's creation. And then notice in verse 12, the fourth trumpet, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. So something happens here now where the whole, the, the, the ability for the sun to shine through, whatever's happening in the atmosphere, the moon to shine through, it is cut uh, by a third. Imagine, those of you who are farmers, imagine if, if a third of the heat and the light is, is cut off. We're gonna, you go in, you're going to go into an ice age. I mean, this place is, is going to turn into a refrigerator. To, to lose all of that. Growing crops, forget about it in, in this kind of, of an environment. And again, the judgment is so righteous. It's like God is, is speaking to them in their rebellion. You want darkness. You don't want to walk in the light. Then I will give you darkness. And they did the same thing with the Egyptians in his judgment to remove his people from Egypt, which is a picture of the world. He caused a darkness to come over all of the land of Egypt. And then John looks, verse 13, 
And uh, as he looked, what, uh, this is what he sees and he hears an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. <laughs> the whole world is in shambles. And there's an angelic being who comes and says, in essence, it, you ain't seen nothing yet in terms of what, what it is that's coming. And it's almost like, the, to me, is the people, they just harden, they will not repent, as we'll see in the next chapter, not tonight, in a couple of weeks. They will not repent. They did not repent. They did not repent. We're told over and... and, and uh, over again uh, there. I forgot what it was I was going to say related to that. And here it is. <laughs> oh, it's gone again. <laughs> it's very sad. You cannot win a war with God. can't be done he can't let it happen not not for one person can he let he cannot let the rebellion of even one person win in his creation he can't can't let that happen and so often a person thinks that I, I can rebel, I can dig in, I can fight against God, and God pours out judgment, and He pours out judgment, and He pours out judgment, and He pours out judgment. And then a person thinks, you know, that I can, uh, God's judgment is, it, you know, will have a limit. I think it can't get worse than what He's already done in my life, the judgment that He's already brought. It, it can't, uh, it, God can't raise it. God can, God as he is infinite he has resources that are way beyond what we can understand he will win he will win and and he will raise the stakes and he will raise the judgment and he will increase the judgment until he wins but he wins he cannot let this go on forever and ever and the most important thing then is not to fight him, not to force him to judge me, but to get on his side in all of this, to get on the winning side of all of this, and to live for him, and to know him, and to end any rebellion against him. Man takes grass, and he takes trees, and he takes the ocean, and he takes the water and he takes the sunlight for granted like it's due him like he is some somebody instead of a speck of dust who ought to be thankful that he can humble himself before God look at the arrogance of our nation and the powerful in this nation not everywhere but in a lot of people and they wake up every single morning and they think all that stuff is due them 
for some reason. And it's a pride in our heart that we would not be aware of apart from the Word of God and the perspective that He brings. We aren't do anything from God. That's His grace every single day to mankind that He provides those things. And when He provides those things, and man is not only unthankful, but then uses those things to further his rebellion against God, then God feels completely free to remove them from the thankless and the rebellious. And that's what he does during the Great Tribulation period. God is not going to arm man to continue their rebellion. He takes these things out of their hands one at a time. It's very deliberate. It's very righteous. It's so pure what he does in the great tribulation. Man wants to rebel against God. They want to blaspheme God. They want to mock God. And yet he still wants God to provide him with wheat and with water and with sunshine and with rain. But God isn't obligated to do that. And there would be something wrong with God if he continued to support that kind of rebellion indefinitely. And the day is coming when he no longer will. And it's called the Great Tribulation period. If you sit here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus, you need to do that. He loves you. He wants to be your Savior. He does not want to be your judge. But if he is forced to judge, he can wear that hat too. It'll break his heart to do it, but he'll do it. He wants to save you. He doesn't want a single person to go through this judgment. He has made it so hard to end up in the tribulation period, to end up in an eternal lake of fire. He has placed his son, the blood of his son, the life of his son between every single one of us in that judgment in an effort. I mean, from heaven's vantage point, God looks and says, there is nothing greater that I could do that to get their attention than to give my only begotten Son. But we're dumbed down on the earth. And we don't look at that as the unbelievably great thing that it is. But heaven isn't dumbed down that way. What a privilege it is to be saved. And I close, for those of us who know the Lord tonight, back to the tribulation saints, and our praise is even greater than the tribulation saints because we won't come out of the great tribulation in that judgment. Are you happy to be saved tonight? <laughs> I'm really happy to be saved tonight. And all that judgment, it's fierce. I was due every bit of that judgment for my sin. And so were you and all the other six billion people on the face of this planet and every human being in the course of human history. And it is the weight of that judgment that our Savior, with plucked out beard, spit-covered, blood-covered face, bore on that cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he who knew no sin became sin 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm so glad to be saved. So much to be thankful for. We'll stop there tonight and pick up uh, chapter 9 next time. Lord willing, two weeks we'll be hosting the uh, Answers in Genesis seminar uh, next week. Come early. <laughs> okay, related to that. But if the worship team would come forward, I'd sure love to worship the Lord a little bit before we uh, close tonight.